Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Well, if you're new with us, we've been in the middle of a series we've been calling By Faith. And through this series, we've been looking at Hebrews chapter 11 and all of the patriarchs of faith. We've looked at Abel and how he brought the first and the best. We've looked at Enoch and how he walked with God. We reminded ourselves of Noah and what he built with his life. And in the last few weeks, we've looked at the father of the faith, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, and how they walked out their faith. And as we've said every single week, this should be way more than a series. I hope this has been an opportunity to deepen your faith, build your faith, uh, cause you to believe for something that you didn't believe for before. So I hope that you are making these by faith statements. And as I was praying through mine this week, I was thinking about all the people in our community and our by, by faith statements that we've made. And I thought, God, I can't wait that probably in three months or six months, six months or a year from now, we're gonna see some of these things come to pass because we believed and we prayed and we contend. So I wanna encourage you this morning, if you haven't written those things down or you stopped believing for them, would you believe again? Would This morning and as we continue on in this series, I promise at some point it will end, but we're not gonna stop being a people that live by faith, right? Well, let's dive in today. I don't want to waste any time. We are going to look at our next patriarch in the faith, and that is Moses. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. You can find it at verse 24. Are you guys up for reading the Bible and just going straight in this morning? Let's do it. Let's do it. It says this, it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of, G of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. Today, I wanna take these few statements that are made about Moses and his faith, and I wanna point out a few things that Moses' faith shows us, that it was by faith that Moses reminded himself that he was a child of Abraham and that he refused to live a life apart from that. It was by faith that he chose to suffer when he could have been enveloped in the treasure of Egypt. And it was by faith that Moses chose to look ahead to the future and not just what was happening around him in the present. And so if you're taking notes today, the title of this message is, It's Better to Suffer. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's better to suffer. I'm just here to bring all the encouragement this morning. Will you pray with me after you're done talking to your neighbor? <laughs> uh, Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you um, for who you are, even just as we sang that this morning. I thank you that you are a God who meets with us personally. You collectively come and speak to us this morning. A prayer, our hearts would be opened, even as I was praying uh, before we got into this room this morning and praying through this week, and I saw you walking around and specifically touching hearts and lives. So we open up our hearts to what you want to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, my family moved to San Francisco just over four years ago, 
And uh, there were certain things that we definitely knew were different about San Francisco than the city that we came from. But isn't it funny when you move somewhere that it's the little things that stick out, the differences? You're like, I, you do that differently. That's strange. And you just have those little revelations. So a couple of things that were different about San Francisco than the city we came from is uh, in the city we lived in, you only would ride your bike or walk if you were doing that for exercise. But you would never be caught walking or riding a bike to get to a destination. Like that was just a no-no. Like why would you do that? And I remember like I'd see people walking that I knew whether it was from church or school or whatever. I'm like, hey, saw you walking. Is everything okay? We would have these conversations with one another because to us, you were only walking because you couldn't afford a car or you got a DUI. Like, that's the only reason. Is is everything okay in your world? Uh, Another difference was things like taking the bus. I would rather be caught walking or riding a bike than taking the bus in my old city. Like, it was just a no-no. But in San Francisco, we take the bus. It's very normal. I'm Only some of my bougie friends, oh, who am I pointing out? They don't like taking the bus. But for us, walking, riding our bike, or taking the bus is very normal. It's a very natural thing. Why? Because to park means, number one, I have to find parking. Then I have to parallel park, which causes me more anxiety than anything else. Or I have to pay for parking or risk like being in the wrong zone. Last time I went to brunch with this girl, we were just chatting, chatting away, got $85 later. Dang it, we should have walked. There's something so much different about San Francisco. Another uh, thing that's different from my old hometown is in my old city, like you could drive somewhere when you chose to, you know, because that's what you do, you drive. And you could leave your purse in the car, run into the store, it'd be fine. But we had to teach our kids pretty quickly that that doesn't happen in San Francisco. Don't leave your purse or your backpack. And so my kids very quickly learned that things were different here and you couldn't do that. In fact, uh, they very quickly got culturized and they'd begin, you know, bring all their things and have their backpack and we'd catch them shoving it under the seat, hiding in the doorway. Like they have like strategic, like, okay, you know, the little flap, like the cup holder thing that comes down, they could shove stuff in there, pop it up. Like Livy, who's right here in the front row, even refused to leave her stuffed animals in the back seat because those are valuable and precious and thieves might want them. But my kids got so used to doing this that even when we go back to our old hometown, even when we go to my brother's house who lives in the country away from everyone behind a gate, they don't leave things in the car. It's so interesting to me how quickly you can get enveloped in the way of life and culture and it can change the way you live. It can change your habits. The customs and the influence of the culture can cause you to change the things that you do. It's interesting if you look at San Francisco and it's such a simple practice, such simple things that we do. You know, you can start to act and live like the foreign people that you're among and it can become normalized, but not all normalization is as innocent as not leaving your purse out or riding a bike. But if we're not careful, we can begin to adopt the customs of a culture and it can cause us not to just have the same customs, but we can start to adopt their convictions. 
And here in Moses, here Moses, the example in Hebrews 11, his great claim to faith was that he, while he lived in Egypt, a highly influential culture, he refused to allow that culture to affect his convictions. Now, for those of you who might be unfamiliar with the story of Moses, I'm going to give you a little bit of the Cliff Notes version. You ready for that? Because otherwise, we're going to have to read a lot of scripture. So you up for Cliff Notes today? Well, Moses was an Israelite who was born during a time of great oppression. The Israelites had been oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptian people. And as Moses uh, was about to be born, about 400 years later, the Pharaoh of the time didn't like how the Israelites were increasing in numbers. And so he made a decree. He said, hey, I want to stop their population from growing. So what I'd like to do is every baby that's born that's a boy from the Hebrew children, I want you to kill them. So enters Moses. And we read about Moses' faith in Hebrews 11, but before we read about his faith, we actually read about his mother's faith. Because her faith was so great that it got documented in Hebrews as well. It says that when Moses was born, she saw that something was different about her son and that she was not afraid of the Pharaoh. So instead of following that decree and killing him, she hid him for three months. And then she devised a rather brilliant plan where she made a basket and waterproofed it and took her child and placed him in this basket and put him out in the Nile River. Now, she just didn't like send him out off to sail, like, all right, bye, baby. She was very strategic. She put him in the water near where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing. And we've learned through scripture that Pharaoh's daughter most likely was barren, couldn't have kids herself. So she happened upon this baby when she heard him crying. And as she swooped up Moses, the second brilliant part of Moses' mother's plan was that the older sister approached Pharaoh's daughter and said this to her, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. The girl went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So not only did Moses' mom not kill her child, she got paid to care for him. Brilliant lady. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now this adoption that took place meant that Moses became royalty. He went from poverty to prince. All of a sudden, he lived a privileged life of luxury. He had the finest clothes, he had the finest food, he had the finest education. In fact, at the time, the Egyptian culture was so advanced in academics and science, and Moses was invited to learn in that culture. He had everything at his fingertips. He had everything he needed and wanted. What a life from poverty to prince. Yet, there was something that didn't sit right with Moses. There was, despite all of this privilege that he was enveloped into, not just becoming an Egyptian, but the elite of the Egyptians, there was a certain dissonance that Moses felt. 
See, he was living among the Egyptians, but because he wasn't truly one of them, there was this inner tension. And it was this inner tension that ultimately drove him to this by faith life that we read about. See, now this morning, I want to draw out three things, three key things that we can see from Moses' life. So the first one today that I want to point out is that Moses refused to be called. It says, it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses, he takes off all the fine linens. He waves goodbye to the servants. He hands in the keys to his chariot. And not only did Moses say, I refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I refuse to be called Pharaoh's grandchild, but I refuse to be called an Egyptian altogether. But this was more than just a wardrobe change. This was about identity. See, to refuse to be called was to say, I no longer identify with that culture. I no longer identify with its practices. No longer do I believe what they believe or live the way they live. No longer am I practicing the things that the Egyptians are practicing. This was a complete divorce of everything that was around Moses. Moses was more interested in what was inside of him than what was around him. Because he may have been in, in Egypt, but he was not of Egypt. Because Egyptian blood didn't run through Moses' veins. Instead, he chose to identify with his DNA, the people of God, whom God had made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He said, I cling to that. That is my identity. See, Moses may have lived in Egypt, but Egypt didn't live in Moses. And this is the point in a sermon where we take the mirror and we put it up to our face because we point out something about the Bible character, but now it's time to ask ourselves a question personally. Hey, how about us? We may reside in San Francisco, but San Francisco shouldn't reside in us. We are not meant to be people who call this place home. No, we are citizens of heaven. And if we're citizens of heaven, then our identity shouldn't be found in the world. It should be found in the word. So what does the word say? The word says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new creation. Old things, that means every practice, every bit of culture, every bit of identity that was before dies it gets buried and all things become new. This is more than just a conversion. It speaks of a rebirth. When you come to Christ, you get a new spiritual DNA. You get a new identity. And when you have a new identity, it'll completely change the way you live. As Moses shows us, that he determined to no longer identify with the Egyptian people, it meant he no longer looked like an Egyptian. He looked different. And the same is true for every single person of faith because that's just the power of identity. The way you look, the way you act, it says a lot about how you identify. 
So if that's true, let me ask you, who are you? How do you identify? Where does your identity come from? Is it found in a political party that you associate with? Is your identity found in the position of your profession? Is your identity found in the group of people that you hang out with and associate with? Because the world is ready to give you your identity. It is ready to tell you who you are. That professor wants to tell you what to believe. That friend group wants to tell you how to act. That social media site wants to tell you what to value. It is very much so ready to tell you who you are. But look no further than how you live to determine who you are. In fact, I said I've lived here for about four years. And as I've lived here and been among this city, I've noticed something very interesting. I've noticed that there is a part of our city in a way that can influence our identity in a great way. As I've hung out with people and pastored them and walked with them, I've noticed that there is a subculture that is extremely influential. You see, our city is made up of many different nationalities, which I love. It's one of the reasons that we wanted to settle in San Francisco. I love when I look around, I don't see people that look like me. I love that I am a minority in my own church. I love that my friends don't look like me. My friends don't come from the same exact background as me. And same for my kids. I love that I've gotten to know so many incredible people in their cultures and their way of life and their tradition and the history. I love this. I love when I look around, that is what our church looks like. But I have to tell you, if you come from a rich history, if you have a strong cultural background, it can be one of the things that will dominate your identity. And please don't hear me wrong on this. I love your culture. I love your tradition. I love the richness of it. And I celebrate some of the things that you participate in. And I've, in fact, been invited to participate in some of that with you. I also love your food and that we can eat together. But if you come from a strong cultural background and you call yourself a Christian, it is vital that you ask yourself some questions. Questions like, do I follow the teachings of my ancestors more than I follow what the word of God says I should live like? Do I honor my relatives more than I honor my God? When I think about my identity and who I am, do I call out my nationality before I call out I'm a Christian? Do I claim that over claiming I am God's? Are you more... Filipino than Christian? Are you more Irish than Christian? Are you more fill in the blank of your nationality? Or do you refuse to be called anything but God's? Because like Moses, he refused. And in order for us to claim that this is who we are, then we have to refuse everything else if we want to be called people of faith. Our identity in Christ must supersede any other competing identity. It's getting quiet in here. <laughs> but I think it's worth mentioning. 
What supersedes or has the potential to supersede your true identity, which is to be called a son or a daughter? Now, Moses refused to be called, and it didn't only affect his identity, but according to Hebrews in the title of today's chat, he also chose to suffer. Come back with me to Hebrews 11. It says he chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasure of sin. He figured it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, consider those two statements really quick because they're pretty weighty here. He chose oppression and he figured it was better to suffer. Moses, the adopted Egyptian, walked away from that lifestyle of privilege and wealth and of the indulgence of Egypt. Everything that was at his fingertips, the good life that we would point to and say, they're blessed. He chose to walk away from all of that so he could share in the oppression of God's people. He chose suffering. Or let me say it like this. If Moses is our example of faith, then to live by faith is to embrace temporary suffering instead of indulging in temporary pleasure. To embrace a temporary suffering instead of indulging in temporary pleasure. We've been studying through the book of Hebrews through chapter 11 specifically, and we've really taken the magnifying glass to this chapter. Some people are like, so how many more weeks are we going to do this? But something can happen when you're so uh, ingrained, so in depth, so in detail of what the word says that sometimes you can forget about the context that's surrounding the stories you're reading. And so I want to do something this morning. I want to take a minute and I want to pull out from this story for a moment. And I want to remind ourselves of the context to which this was written, because this isn't just a book in your Bible. The book of Hebrews was a letter that was written to a people first. And these were the Hebrew people, the people of God. These were people who were Jewish believers. And the time that they lived, the Jewish culture was accepted. The Romans had accepted the Jewish culture and, you know, it was perfectly acceptable for them to practice it. But there was now a new religion, a new way, if you will, a group of people that called themselves Christ followers that was not acceptable during that time. And so these group of Hebrews found themselves in a predicament. They found themselves in the midst of some suffering because they were being persecuted and they were being mocked and they were looking at, are we gonna get beaten? Are we gonna get stoned? Are we gonna get crucified like Christ did? And so the writer of Hebrews wrote to encourage them and say, hey, don't give up on your faith. Because guess what? Some of them were thinking, maybe we should just abandon this altogether. Maybe it's too hard to follow this way. We should just go back to our Jewish roots and heritage or, you know, live under a rock and pretend like we don't serve Christ. And the writer of Hebrews wrote to encourage them, say, don't stop. And these people knew who Moses was. They knew the life that Moses had lived. And so the writer of Hebrews says, hey, remember Moses. 
Remember what he gave up, the lifestyle of Egypt, and remember that he chose suffering. But beyond having this group of people remember Moses, he invites them to choose suffering. Now, it was written to them first, but it's also written to us. And we live in a day and age, we live in a country where we can freely worship our God. But the writer of Hebrews is still speaking to us. And he's saying to us, don't just remember Moses and that he chose to embrace suffering. I'm inviting you to embrace suffering too. Say what? Suffering? That don't sound that exciting. You want me to suffer? No, listen, that's not the American gospel that easily sells. And that wasn't the gospel that was preached to me. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that someone only gave you a half truth, that serving Christ, you get to uh, join him in his glory, but there's another half. See, the true gospel says that we also join him in his suffering. Now, the apostle Paul reminds us of this in Romans 8, 17, where he says, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are his are heirs of God's glory, which is great good news. And you're like, let's just end there. But he goes on to say, but if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Paul said, if I'm going to share in Christ's glory, I too am going to share in his suffering. Furthermore, the author of Hebrews says here that Moses embraced the same suffering for Christ. Now, wait a minute. I was reading my Bible and I was like, Old Testament, New Testament, didn't Moses come before Christ? I'm kind of confused here. Now, the reason that the writer of Hebrews worded it this way is because Moses is a type and picture of what it looks like for us to suffer for Christ. He was an Old Testament template for a New Testament reality that when you come to Christ, there will inevitably be suffering. Smile at me this morning. Thank you. I want to ask you this morning, have you embraced any suffering for Christ? And let me phrase it this way. Are you doing anything that hurts? And I'm not saying like subject yourself to pain for pain's sake. Like don't just get punched in the face to get punched in the face. But are you doing anything in your life right now in this walk as a believer that causes you to suffer? that causes you some hurt. Let me ask you, does it hurt when you give? Does it pain you when you take that amount of money and you see it leave? Now, in your giving is the amount and the way you give, does it hurt? Does it cause a pit in your stomach when you see it leave your bank account? And you go, especially those who work on commission and like, is, it, is there going to be any that comes in return? Like, does it hurt when you give? Does it hurt when you serve? Or, or, or not so much because you ain't really doing it. Are you serving yourself more or are you serving others? Does it hurt when you walk away from that space that you know you shouldn't partake in? Does it hurt when you say no to your friends that I can't go there or do that? 
because I follow this way? Does that hurt? Does it pain you? Does it hurt when you say no to that fleeting pleasure? It's the one that you keep going back to. Does it hurt when you walk away from it to say, no, I'm going this way? Does it hurt when you leave that relationship you know you shouldn't be in? That group of people that you shouldn't be around and you, you have to have that awkward conversation? Does your faith hurt? Does your faith hurt or is it a little bit more like the fleeting pleasures that are available to us in our surroundings? Is that what your faith looks like? By Moses' example, true faith is one that says it's better to suffer. It is better to hurt than to indulge. See, something that I've noticed about the westernized church is I think we can sometimes be far more obsessed with the American dream than we are with the God dream. We can be far more obsessed with what we can attain the job, the status, the house, the bank account, the vacation, the comforts, or whatever your version of success and comfort looks like to you. If we're not careful, we can buy into the lie that our faith has to fit into this box that says, well, does it serve my schedule? Is it convenient for me? Does it serve my convictions? And all of a sudden we pick up our head and we realize that our faith isn't serving God, it's serving us. Or, or we can have the kind of faith that Moses had that laid aside the fleeting pleasure, that laid aside those things and said, I declare with my life, it is far better to face temporary suffering than those temporary pleasures. See, like much of the Christian faith, it is far easier said than done, is it not? (laughs) Willful suffering does not come easy. But if this is the kind of faith we're supposed to have, a faith that embraces suffering and refuses to identify with the surrounding culture, then where do we get it? Where does it come from? Well, Moses shows us that as well. He first says he refused to identify, and then he chooses to suffer. And next, I'm going to give you the third point as the band comes. It says that he looked forward. Hebrews 11.26 says that Moses was looking ahead to a great reward. We spent a lot of time in this series looking back. We've spent a lot of time in the book of Genesis, which I love. We've looked back upon these patriarchs of faith and the faith that was represented in their life. We've looked back on things that God has done, the miracles, the ways that he's made. We've looked back to say, God, what you did before, you can do again. But Moses, he did something a bit different. Where did he find his faith? Instead of Moses looking back, it says that he looked forward. He looked forward to the reward that was on the other side of his willingness to separate himself from indulging in the fleeting pleasures of this life. And he was, in, he was willing, willing to embrace temporary suffering. Why? Because he knew what was on the other side. 
He knew what was on the other side of a temporary suffering. He knew what was waiting for him on the other side of eternity. And as we'll see in these coming weeks, because Moses was willing to identify with God's people, he set himself up to be a catalyst that would bring an entire nation to freedom. Now today, the case for Moses is such the case for us. The key to remaining steadfast and pure in a culture, in this type of culture, is knowing that our identity is in Christ, in Christ alone. And that temporary suffering is nothing in comparison to eternal reward. So I wanna ask you one last question this morning. What are you looking forward to? Not like today, like what are you gonna have for lunch? What are you looking forward to? I know I'm looking forward to the day that I'll stand before Jesus, where I have the opportunity for him to ask me, did you influence your culture or did your culture influence you? Did you choose to stay and embrace those temporary pleasures or did you choose suffering? Did you suffer with me? The way I wanna live my life is that after I've answered those questions, my Jesus will say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. But he won't end there because the promises we get to look forward. He'll say, enter into eternity. Enter into a place that has far greater treasure than anything that Egypt could have given you. Anything you could have embraced here on this earth. That is what you have to look forward to. See, the reason we're looking at Moses and his name in Hebrews 11 is because he left a legacy with his faith. But Moses, he lived a long time ago. And today I wanna give us another example of somebody that's a little bit closer to our time. 1182 is not our time, but it's far closer than Moses. And this is somebody that we all can relate to, somebody we know, and it's because our city was named after them. I wanna tell you, if you don't know, about St. Francis of Assisi. It says this of him. He was like Moses and he was born into wealth. His father's successful business had secured Francis to have a carefree life of material comfort. He had everything he needed and wanted and many expected that he would follow his father in his profession and like him attain wealth and noble standing. But that was not what Francis wanted. Francis wanted to serve God. He wanted to serve the house of God and the poor. And so he began using his father's wealth to restore dilapidated churches and to generously care for the poor. Now this was not the vision Francis's father had for his wealth. So one day he confronted his son. And by confronting him, he publicly exploded on his son in the town square, demanding repayment for all that Francis had squandered in his gener generosity to the poor. Right in front of all the townspeople, Francis did something that astonished his father and the others. 
he stripped himself naked, renouncing his rights to the heir, and he gave all the fine clothing back to his father. See, it was in that moment that Francis took a vow of poverty and he surrendered all worldly goods to live a life that suffered for Christ. That was St. Francis, the namesake of our city. Now today, my goal is not to have everyone in this room take a vow of poverty, nor do I ask you to strip publicly and renounce something. The goal today is to establish something in our hearts to have something in our heart that says, I'm willing to do whatever God asks me to do. I'm willing to suffer at whatever level I need to suffer at so that I can serve the purposes of God here upon this earth. The goal today is that we would maybe be a little bit more like the people that cities are named after because of their faith. Will you pray with me today? Father, I pray that this would be far more than a word that we just listened to on a Sunday. It would far, be far more than remembering what Moses did, but I pray that you would speak to each heart. You would speak to us and lead us up from here. I pray that we would be a little bit more like Moses a little bit more like St. Francis, those who know that our identity is found in Christ and Christ alone and anything that tries to supersede that would lay down. We even lay that down right now. I pray that we would be those who would flee. We would run from those temporary pleasures of life and we would be willing to suffer at whatever level because we know the promise is true that if we join you in your suffering, we join you in your glory. Oh, Father, I pray you would speak to our hearts today. And I wanna also pray for another group of people in the room. If you're here today and you say, I don't have something to look forward to because I don't have a relationship with Christ. If you're far from him and don't wanna be any longer, he, not me, wants to invite you into relationship with him today. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you are saved. And today, I do not wanna present an American gospel to you that only promises glory. I'll be honest, it's not easy following Jesus, but I guarantee you it is most certainly worth it to have a companion, a God who will walk with you upon this earth and who promises you as you walk with him here, he is preparing a place for you of eternal glory. So if that's you today and you're far from God and you don't wanna be any longer, I wanna know who I'm praying with. If that's you, just simply lift your hands so I can see you and pray with you today. Father, right now, every heart that's turning towards you, thank you that it's not in the eloquence of their word, but it's in their choice to make a decision to follow after you today. And you can just simply say in your heart, I choose to follow you. I choose to give you my life. Thank you that my entire identity that was before, I can lay it down and you give me a new identity. I received that today. 
make a decision to follow you all the days of my life so that one day I can stand before you face to face and you can say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you, Father, for every person that's made that decision today. Thank you that heaven is rejoicing over them. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.